Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, September 11th, 2009. Okay, this week we bring our 9-11 Memorial Show. Episode 137 is going to come to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, a Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Hi there, good uh, day to every one of them, and hello, uh, Andy. I hope you are listening. Good day, Dieter. Welcome. All right. Uh, We've also got at the controls, as usual, the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good day, Chris. Also, uh, the Z-man is at Connections this week. He'll be back in uh, in the studio next week chairing the show for next week. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got a new segment called Name That Guest. The prize this week is going to be a new item. Uh, We've got some new IAQ radio hats that have come in. And uh, we'll play that in just a moment. We also have Mr. Jack Springston, CIH and CSP of the uh, Sandler Occupational Medicine Associates in New York City. We're going to tie our industrial hygiene and indoor environmental quality show in with some of the events that occurred on 9-11, some of the projects that Jack worked on. And, of course, we've got Dr. Dieter helping us out with some of this IH and IEQ. I also want to shout out to the folks down at the University of West Florida in the uh, Fundamentals of Indoor uh, of Industrial Hygiene Application to Indoor Environmental Quality Group. They'll be listening in as a part of this week's assignment. Uh, we'll have the halftime with uh, Glenn Feldman, the What's News segment. Then the second half of our interview with Jack and Dr. Dieter. And, of course, the roundup, as always. We've been updating and adding a little blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, I want to thank our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. 
Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio and when you inquire about their services or products. Of course, to contact the show, you call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. Uh, to contact the show, um, you can also go to iaqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. Now, we also want you to know that we've got the ABIH uh, certification maintenance points now available through IAQ Radio. We also have those IICRC continuing education credits and IAQ Council renewal credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And, of course, you can always make suggestions, requests, etc., by emailing me or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. And last but not least, we want to thank the IAQ Training Institute. Check out their website at iaqtraining.com for the most current dates for the training you trust. Let's go on to the microband trivia question for this week. Okay, we've changed it up a little this week. Instead of a question, we've got a clip from a previous show. The first person that can uh, name the guest that uh, is speaking here about ozone in this case, we tied it into this week's show, we'll get one of those new IAQ radio hats. Well, I think I've studied it more as uh, a function of looking at problems in indoor environments. And... Uh, primarily related to air cleaners. Um, now, ozone occurs. You're going to have formation of ozone uh, related to all sorts of reactions in the lower atmosphere. But in, in homes, we have it anytime you have arcing occurring in a home, electrical arcing, uh, laser printers, copiers, um, electronic air cleaners. You're going to form ozone into the air and uh, add that into the environment. That being, uh, ozone is a very corrosive, highly reactive uh, gas, which uh, affects health. Uh, is very, very much a concern for people with allergies, for people with asthma. Uh, even, even for healthy people, there's a, a, a strong associated reduction in pulmonary function related to exposure to ozone. And ozone can be very dangerous. There are many uh, byproducts related to uh, indoor chemistry, which occurs in homes and uh, the presence of ozone. Okay. You can either text your message in now or you can email it to Cliff or I. Our webs, uh, emails are on the website, once again, iaqradio.com. This week we have two guests, one here in the studio with me. Most of you are familiar with our Technical Director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, he'll be joining us. Good day, good day. Good, day, good, good to be here. Always oh, a pleasure to have you with us. And we've got Mr. Jack Springston, Certified Industrial Hygienist and Certified Safety Professional with Sandler Occupational Medicine Associates. Mr. Springston has been a CIH since 1993 and holds a subspecialty certificate in indoor environmental quality. He has over 20 years of experience in recognizing, evaluating, and controlling employees' exposures to health hazards at their workplace. He has participated in and overseen 
hundreds of indoor environmental quality studies, both investigative and proactive, in over 50,000 square feet of building space. We're going to alternate our questions a little bit here today. We're going to talk about the fundamentals of industrial hygiene and indoor environmental quality, but then we're going to ask Jack to tie those experiences or those concepts in with the experiences he had on 9-11. And I think we've got a short clip for Jack. Good afternoon, Jack. How are you? Good. Yourself? Very good. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Uh, do I get the chance to... Uh guess on who that speaker was <laughs> <laughs> i bet you know that one uh, uh, well let's see if, if any of the uh, listeners have a, i think i've got one listener that wants to type it in right now go for it <laughs> all right hey well listen uh we're going to start out here with the section um we're actually working with a group at the university of west florida on a, a, a program called the fundamentals of industrial hygiene application to indoor environmental quality and the uh the text for the course is The Occupational Environment, Its Evaluation, Control, and Management, edited by uh, Salvatore Dinardi. And in Chapter 20 here, they've got a, a list of things about assessing ventilation problems. And with Dieter being a, a ventilation guru and with you, I'm sure, being quite familiar with ventilation systems up in New York City, we thought we would start with a discussion of some of the things they recommend you ask building owners for when you start these investigations. And um, I guess what I'd like to do is kind of throw it back and forth between you and Dieter. The first thing they ask for is, is a set of commissioning documents. I'm wondering, if, let's start with you, Jack. Do you ever get to see any commissioning documents? Um, virtually never. On, on the newer buildings, uh, possibly. You know, if you're talking like four times square or, or some of the newer ones that, that went up in, in our what they call green buildings. Um, but other than that, no, you'd never be able to find them. Okay. And, uh, Dr. Dieter, would you agree with that? Well, I'm doing that for 40 years. I've never seen one either. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rare. All right. But I think what they're trying to get through here is to at least ask for these documents and, you know, do it in a way, I guess, that, um, allows the building owner to know or the building manager, whomever you're working with, that you should have these types of documents and not try to embarrass them, but at least give them some idea. The next one is um, operating instructions for the HVAC and maintenance records for the system components. Ever see those, Jack? Not operating instructions, no. Um, okay. You, you might, in, in certain circumstances, uh, be able to get, get your hands on maintenance records. And okay. it depends on, on how well the building is run. All right. Dieter, anything on maintenance? Well, I uh, still have to wait for another 40 years to find one of those. <laughs> Never seen them. All right. Well, I, I've seen a little bit on maintenance. Well, sometimes I see it. Somebody wrote on the side of the air handler a date when uh, presumably they changed, I, I assume, <laughs> changed the filters or remove the rats and pigeons that were sitting in front of it. But uh, it's, 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 I have never seen one well-documented where somebody was there 
He initialed it. He has a date on it and said, this is what I did. I've never seen it. All right. What about, um, I'm going to skip as-built drawings because I, I have a feeling I'm going to get a similar answer there unless there's something you want to add to that, Jack. Uh, no, no, you, you pretty much hit on the, uh, on the nail head right there. <laughs> All right. What about updated drawings on tenant build-out and interior renovations? Seems like you'd be able to get a hold of something like that from time to time. Uh, yes, you can. Okay. All right, and and I'm sure they're quite helpful when you're trying to evaluate a ventilation system. Yes, absolutely. All right, what about, um, I'm going to skip a few of these and go down to one I think is, uh, how about the planned and actual ventilation air per occupant? Um, no, you never see that, not per yeah. occupant. You might have on your drawings telling you um, X. CFM per per um, uh, your outlets, but uh, it's not going to tell you per occupant. Okay, all right. And um, what about? Do you ever get to see any good uh, information on complaints that have come in? For instance, thermal occupant complaints about thermal comfort or other complaints. Uh, no, typically not. Um, there have been a couple of instances where where you go in and somebody has you know kept copies of emails that they've received from from people and what they've been complaining about. Um, but that's probably the best you're going to see. Okay. And and what about uh, material safety data sheets for chemicals used in in the system operation? Uh, well, all your buildings are supposed to have. Um, copies of all the MSDSs for, for whatever they're using. Uh, a lot of times you'll go in and they're very outdated. Um, they, they haven't kept it up. Um, so if you do, you consider yourself lucky. Okay. Uh, what about floor plans? I, I've had trouble getting floor plans, but I have gotten them. I assume you can get those from time to time. Yes, yeah. I, just about any place. I do. You, you can at least get, you know, footprint plans. Okay. Now, what I'd like to do, Jack, because you've done quite a bit of work after 9-11, and if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what you did, but um, unfortunately I was going to ask if doing that work um, – led you to situations where you had fewer documents than you normally would. Apparently, normally you don't have quite a, quite a bit to work with, so I don't know that you had any fewer after 9-11, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the type of work you did after 9-11? Uh, we um, did investigations in buildings uh, immediately surrounding the area. Um, we did a lot of the initial uh, going down, doing air samples, uh, bulk dust samples, trying to characterize the, the, the dust, the, the hazard. Um, as far as being able to get drawings for, for these buildings, in, in some cases, absolutely not. I mean, you would go in, and, and if you had one or two maintenance people in there, uh, you were lucky. <clears throat> I remember going into some of these buildings, and, and this is just mere days afterwards, uh, walking in, and there was like only a single guard there, and he would ha he handed me a flashlight and a set of keys, and said, "Okay, go ahead." Um, <laughs> and that was it. 
You know, it's 10 o'clock at night. I'm walking in this building with a flashlight, and it's just me and the guard downstairs. So Wow. How do you st- where do you start? Uh, you t- typically start on the highest floor because it's easier to walk down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And, uh, how, many, how many story buildings are we talking about? I know uh, you've worked in numerous buildings, but... Uh, probably the, the tallest one was uh, maybe 40 stories. Um, okay. And then going down from there, uh, well, 40, 50 stories, somewhere around there. Was there not? I, I thought you mentioned there were some residential properties you looked at as well. Uh, there was a couple of um, condominiums that, that were right on the site, uh, and we didn't really do a whole lot of residential. Though in, in that case, it was the occupants were some of them were extremely well known um, in the entertainment industry, so uh, they were able to afford to, to hire outside consultants to come in and take a look and, and do testing. I guess that's the first thing I should have asked you. Who who were you working for, if you can tell me, on these projects? <laughs> um, we did some work for insurance companies. A lot of them were um, uh, for individual tenants. Um, in one case, we were working for, they no longer exist now, but Lehman Brothers, um, we worked for uh, post office. Um, uh, some of the buildings, you know, the building owners we worked for. Okay. And let's, let's go into a little um, different angle on this. We, uh, in this book, they break down these pollutant categories, um, and they, they start with things like CO, CO2, nitrogen, and sulfur oxides. Uh, let's start with those three, um, CO, CO2, nitrogen, and sulfur oxides. Let's start with you, uh, Dr. Dater here. What, what are your findings in general when you go in and investigate indoor environmental quality issues um, for those types of parameters? Yeah, fortunately, I mean, I, I investigated several places where there was carbon monoxide, CO, uh, in the air and uh, from uh, the heating system. And fortunately, it was in relatively low concentrations. And that is the amazing thing with the, new, the newer equipment that is there. I measured exhaust fumes from a uh, hot water uh, heater, gas-fired, and, um, and a heating system, and it was in a, it, 12 to 20 parts per million, which is very, very low. Uh, we have to remember that the OSHA limit, eight-hour exposure, it was 50 parts per million, and it has been lowered to 35. So I was surprised to see that. So... It certainly is of concern, and I would like to know what it is. But amazingly, I haven't really found uh, in, in, in office buildings and homes concentrations that really, really would shock me. And I'm talking about maybe 500 or 600 or 700 ppm. It just apparently doesn't happen all that often anymore. Jack, can you add anything there? Well, typically when we're doing office buildings, we, we rely on national ambient air quality standards for CO, which is nine parts per million. 
Um, unless there is something seriously wrong uh, mm-hmm. within the building, you're you're never going to see levels probably above maybe three parts per million. Uh, this is within Manhattan in the immediate area. Um, and and usually if we do see it, the culprit is, is the out, outdoor air intakes, which are at street level. And, and, and it's kind of like a no-duh, now I know why. Um, but uh, for nitrogen and sulfur oxides, uh, I, I may have monitored it once or twice in, in all the years that I've done testing. It's just okay. not one of those things that we look for. Okay, and I, I'm let me get this part of things straightened out first here. When we we mentioned testing a few times, but um, I assume both of you would agree that you don't do much, if any, testing unless you're you've got something you're trying to prove, a hypothesis or disprove. Uh, is that accurate, or do you sometimes go in and just do a little, you know, uh, simple diagnostics to maybe help you develop that hypothesis? Um, I like to do um, some direct reads and specifically looking at, you know, carbon dioxide, carbon uh, monoxide, temperature and relative humidity. First, it's it's very simple to do. It's, you know, you just walk around and get your results right away. And if you see elevated uh, CO2, um, you can then start focusing on, on the HVAC system because the occupants are the ones that are generating it. Um, if you see um, high relative humidity within the building, again, you can look at the HVAC system, um, particularly if it's in the summer, um, because that suggests maybe the cooling coils aren't aren't working correctly. So it it can give you, um, the data that you get, you know, real time can give you a direction to go in. Okay, so it can help you to form that direction you want to go to. Um, Let me ask a couple other ones because I know these are more pertinent to the type of work you did after 9-11, Jack, and that would be um, a couple other categories. One is fibers and the other is particulate matter. I'm assuming based on my conversations with you that those were important fingerprints for you in trying to determine where the damage came from and how bad the damage was in these adjacent buildings. Is that accurate? Um, yeah. And, and when, when we were um, working for, you know, tenants or, or building owners or, or whatnot, um, a lot of times the insurance companies were like, well, that dust could have been there from previously or whatnot. So, um, we needed to identify some sort of a fingerprint so you can go back to the insurance company and go, this is World Trade Center dust, you know. And, and so early on, we, we were trying to figure out what those fingerprints were. And, and you could say, oh, uh, well, silica because of the concrete and whatnot, but you're going to find silica in, in regular road dust, Um you could say gypsum because we know there was all that sheetrock, but if you go into any building that's had a build-out, you're going to find gypsum. So uh, some of the, the, the better fingerprints for us was, uh, number one, chrysotile asbestos. Um, very fine, uh, typically single fibrils or, or small bundles, um, and we were finding that consistently in, in the dust. 
uh, and then man-made vitreous fibers, uh, fiberglass, slag wool, stuff like that. Did you do comparisons to other buildings that weren't in the vicinity to try and get some uh, relative idea of you know what's in normal buildings versus what you were finding in these buildings around the uh, ground zero? Um, we did do it specifically for one client whom I can't say who it was specifically, just say they were a bank. Um, uh, and there was some testing done by others to, to look at, uh, you know, what, what what's in the dust uh, up in the Bronx or, or up in Harlem as compared to what you were finding down um, around the trade centers. Let me ask both of you this one then. Um, would you normally find any chrysotile in dust in a building? Um, from my standpoint, it's going to depend on what's in the building. If, if you have a, a relatively old building that's got a lot of spray-on um, fireproofing in it, you are likely to find uh, low trace amounts, yes. Okay. But I assume you find more than trace amounts in these buildings. Uh, we were finding it upwards of about 8% um, wow. in the dust. That, that's by volume. Dieter, any comment on that? Well, yeah, I took several samples uh, in Pittsburgh office buildings, and in uh, in most of them, I, I I didn't find anything to write home about. Yes, of course, the fiber here and there. In fact, I don't even know where they came from. But we have a huge building here in Pittsburgh, uh, 64 stories, the US the old U.S. Steel Building, and which is full of asbestos. And they are, I think, even today, monitoring on a daily basis asbestos fibers. And um, if you don't disturb it, you are in pretty good shape. Now, do you find a couple of fibers? Yes. Is it all coming from the insulation? Most likely. Is it possible that it comes from the street or from the adjacent building? Yes, it does. But uh, by and large, in my experience, I haven't found many asbestos fibers in, quote, dust samples in, quote, normal office buildings. And those are buildings which are not 200 years old or something like that. Okay. Well, let me ask you the same thing on the uh, man-made vitreous fibers. What Have you done any sampling on that? Uh, well, once in a while you run into them, but um, uh, I, uh, I, I, I have not seen them very often. You know, it's been ages since I've even looked at reports with that being analyzed, Jack. What kind of numbers were you finding on that? Uh, upwards of 30, 40 percent. Wow. Mean, it, it, it was, it, when we were doing the air samples, uh, you know, just mere days after the collapse, um, and we were doing air samples down Wall Street around the Stock Exchange, uh, <clears throat> 55 Water Street. Um, I don't know if you know Manhattan, but uh, in ambient air, outdoor air, the levels that we were finding <clears throat> of fiberglass, um, we were getting counts of 10, 20,000 um, with, with this fiberglass. I mean, just insane numbers that I had never seen before. Is that measured the way asbestos in it is in fibers per cubic centimeter? Uh, yeah, we're doing what's called aerosol 
samples, uh, the Zephon. Uh, it's a it's a sticky tape, and and you pull a sample for like five minutes, and and then they do a count on it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Peter, any other comment on that? Yeah, that that sounds incredibly high. I haven't seen those, but yeah, I'm in Pittsburgh, and you guys are in New York, so that may make a difference here. Yes. Well, and these were right after the event too. So. Oh well, that that is sure. And but didn't we see? information from OSHA and others that the levels were somewhat normal fairly soon after the event, Jack? Um, yes, that's what they said. Uh, okay. Uh, no further comment on that. <laughs> You've got your data, they've got theirs, and uh, we'll just leave it at that, I guess. I'm curious, what other types of analysis did you perform after the after the event, and um, was it, apparently it wasn't as helpful as the uh, asbestos analysis and the analysis of the uh, uh, man-made vitreous fibers, but um, what else did you do? Uh, we looked within the bulk dust samples, we looked at heavy metals, um, lead, nickel, chromium, uh, things like that. Um, tended to find a lot of iron in the dust from the steel. Um, we looked at mercury, uh, considering about uh, all the fluorescent uh, bulbs that, that got crushed, and, and actually we were finding it early on, but you could go back three months later um, and sample from the exact same location, and it wasn't there anymore because it sublimated out. Uh, we looked for dioxins, uh, which we were finding, especially in buildings where they had had fires, uh, and PCBs. I see. Now, these are things I, I'm assuming you don't look at very often in other situations. Uh, no, no. Okay. So you wouldn't normally be looking at these. These were specific to the fact that there had been a catastrophic event that occurred there. Yeah, uh, and, and part of the problem that we had, especially when we were dealing with metals, is we'd get the result and then, you know, what the heck does it mean, you know? Uh, what do we compare it against? You know, how do how do we determine what's in normal dust versus what's you know in, in this obvious trade center dust? And I I know we're a little over half time here, but I'm curious, what did you end up using as a, a method for determining what was normal versus what you were finding? We looked at. What the published studies said it was the background levels in the soil in the metropolitan New York area, figuring uh, if, if it was dust that was coming from the soil, this, these would be the levels you'd find. I see. Okay. Listen, we're going to take a short break here for our halftime, and then we'll bring you back on, Jack. Okay. All right. Thank you. A newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get a sign that do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Good afternoon, Glenn Fellman. Hello, Glenn. 
Hello, Joe. How are you? All right. I'm good. Thank you. Great to have you back again. We've been off for a little while. What's news, Mr. Feldman? Well, I got a couple interesting items for listeners today. I'm going to start off with uh, one that's right out of the headlines. Uh, we're hearing a lot about H1N1, and I think it's just going to continue to be a big topic as we get uh, further into cold and flu season. But it's already a huge problem on, on college campuses. The New York Times reports that there are now more than 2,000 swine flu victims on college campuses, uh, according to the American College of Health Association and their survey. Uh, and as colleges welcome students back this month, they're keeping those who are infected with H1N1 at a safe distance. They're doing some interesting things uh, besides dispensing face masks and, and encouraging all the other types of things you'd encourage people to do, like washing hands. Uh, Carnegie Mellon has designated a vacant sorority house for the infected. St. John's has set aside a gymnasium. And Princeton did the opposite, reserving a space for healthy students so sick roommates can sleep in solitude. That's interesting. <laughs> the, uh, the swine flu is most prevalent at colleges in the southeast and northwest, according to the Health Association survey, with the largest outbreaks at campuses in Georgia, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, and Washington State. Of the 189 colleges that responded to a survey, more than half had experienced the swine flu case confirmed in the last week of August. So it's coming, folks. It is coming. You know, I saw an article similar, and it was probably similar, and it was a university, I want to say in Atlanta, maybe it was Emory or something like that, and they had a little uh, frat house or a, a building set up for the sick people. And um, they said there were 200 people in there. And then I looked at the number you just gave, I can't remember what it was, with the total number of cases, and what did you say, like 2,000? According to this survey, there were there were more than 2,000. I think they did the survey at the uh, sometime in August, I guess the last week of August. I was going to say, I think it's really multiplied since then, uh, because if they've got 200 people that have been quarantined at, at one little university in Atlanta, well, I don't know how little it is, but uh, there's a whole heck of a lot of universities out there. This should be getting more interesting as we go through the year. Okay. All right. Well, that gives me a good segue into my next news item, which is uh, something new from the Indoor Air Quality Association. The Indoor Air Quality Association has developed a members-only listserv. Now, uh, if you know about listservs, they're a great way for exchanging information. And actually, a bunch of guidelines and tips and things for indoor environmentalists have gone on the listserv in the last week, uh, talking about H1N1, guidelines for building owners and managers, guidelines for schools, guidelines for janitorial personnel, uh, all kinds of great stuff there. So if you're not a member of the Indoor Air Quality Association, go to <clears throat> iaqa.org and consider downloading an application and joining. This list service had great dialogue in the first couple of weeks. Uh, hundreds of people have subscribed very quickly, and it's becoming a popular forum. Next right. on my list, uh, I've got some news about something called FIF. FIF is a term that, uh, that you probably haven't heard before, P-H-E-A-F. Uh, it's a new term coined by the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization uh, as part of a standard that they put out officially for public review through the American National Standards Institute. Uh, the FIF standard, uh, what that stands for, is Portable High Efficiency Air Filtration Device. And the FIF standard is a, is a field testing standard for these devices to test whether they are actually doing the filtering that they're supposed to do. 
So if you're on the job or doing mold remediation or asbestos and you've got a great big HEPAVAC, is that HEPAVAC really uh, you know, keeping the particles inside or are they escaping from outside the box? The standard is out for public review. I think it's a 30-day comment period and we're about a week into it. You can go to iestandards.org or indoorstandards.org and you can download that draft standard. You can submit comments through the public review process. It's really exciting for IESO because this is the first uh, standard that they've actually produced to the point of public comment. They've got about 10 standards under development, but this one is the furthest along. Uh, Glenn, can you give that uh, link there again? It was IE... You can go to iestandards.org. Or you standards.org, okay. I, yeah, let's go with that one, iestandards.org. Very good, thank you. Sure. Last one I got for you real quick. Um, I wanted to let people know that the um, Indoor Environmental Department at Lawrence Berkeley National, La National Labs, uh, with support from EPA, has developed a really cool website called the I IAQ Scientific Findings Resource Bank. It gives a critical review information and some downloadable papers about the impacts of IAQ on health and people's performance. Uh, there's some great stuff in there. They just added a new section on dampness and mold. And the website URL, I'll do this one slowly, is iaqscience.lbl.gov. That's iaqscience.lbl.gov. Excellent. We'll get that up on our uh, on our uh, resources page as well at iaqradio.com. All right. Well, thank you, Glenn. Can you join us for the roundup? I'll be here. Great. All right. Before we go back to our guests, I need to make sure we thank our sponsors. We are delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. You can visit them at iaqa.org. We also want to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Of course, ProRestore products for cleaning, odor, removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, we want to make sure we thank our primary sponsors again, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, I might add, now online. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. All right, let's go back to our interview with uh, Jack Springston and Dr. Dieter. Gentlemen, uh, first I want to uh, move on to a little different subject. Um, the first category of pollutants that are spoke about in this or written about in the book we're uh, talking about here today were the chemical agents. We've covered them pretty well. The next group are the biological agents. And what I'd like to do is talk to both of you a little bit about 
biological agents. And uh, let's let's get started with Jack. What what's your opinion on the media take on mold and and how often is it a part of your IAQ complaints or observations? Um, I guess my first take is, is thank goodness they, they finally uh, calmed down a little bit. I, I think they were a, a tad overboard. Um, and a lot of that was probably driven because of litigation, which the insurance companies uh, were very quick to get out of that. Um, I still tend to get quite a few calls uh, regarding mold. Um, and typically, unless it's been a, a catastrophic flood or something, you're you're dealing with you know small scale um, uh, problems in in my in my mind. Uh, what about when you had the catastrophic events you dealt with after 9/11? I'm assuming you found some pretty uh, pretty nasty situations. Uh, we we had buildings that were virtual cheese factories. They had so much mold. I understand. I can imagine. I mean, is that the result of being closed up? And then, of course, the the water that was used uh, to try and put out the the fires and, and all that. Or uh, what was the main reason? Um, it it varied by building. Uh, we we had a couple of buildings where they had three, four feet of water sitting in them for uh, upwards of three months before they pumped it out, um, along with about 20,000 gallons of diesel floating on top of that. Um, so we, we had fairly spectacular growth in, in those buildings. Um, other ones because of uh, fire sprinklers going off, because they had, they had um, fires in the building um, due to uh, debris, flaming debris going into the buildings. So uh, and then in a couple of other buildings, it was actually from uh, the, the New York Fire Department who were using those buildings to spray water onto the uh, on, onto the piles. I see. And I'm just curious, were the building owners, what were they most concerned about? Was it, was it the chemicals? Was it the mold? Was it uh, something else? Um. Well, it, it uh, again, it varied by the building and whatever conditions uh, they were in. Um, as far as mold, that was kind of a side issue. Uh, more concern was the trade center dust itself in, in trying to get get it out of the building. Uh, you know, remove it as much as possible, and, and in some cases. Uh, the buildings we had them virtually gutted. I mean, uh, by the time we left, the building was cleaner than it was when it was than when it was first built. You know, I can imagine. I, I did a lot of asbestos work back in the um, late '80s and the early '90s, and if I had a building coated with dust that had eight percent chrysotile in it. Um, I bet they spent a whole heck of a lot of money cleaning that up, trying to get that to the point where it was, uh, you know, reasonable to expect people to go back into those buildings. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem too is, you know, trying to it, it's you know, at what point do you stop? You know, um, 
you could rip the building completely apart to be, to get to all the dust, and and I think that's basically what we're seeing with the with Deutsche Bank building. You know, uh, they they decided um, they wouldn't ever be able to get all of it, so let's tear down the building itself. Um, there were other buildings that we got called into uh, where the building told the tenants, okay, you can move in, you know, starting tomorrow. And this uh, this was mid late October of of '01. They were told this, and they had us go in um, to check out their spaces before they moved in. And the building had only done a superficial cleaning. Uh, you know, it looked great. The carpets were were beautifully you know, vacuumed and everything but when i moved the ceiling tile you know, from the drop ceiling which the space above it is the return air plenum um it snowed on me uh, there was so much dust up there and I, I found a blank check from a company that was that had been housed in two world Finan- uh world trade center so it was like guess how this got up here wow so now- did, were you able to clean these? I mean, this is a problem I have been wrestling with. Um, I do a little work with some people that do HVAC systems cleaning, and um, plenums are a huge problem with respect to cleaning them. I'm assuming you just had to rip those out. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But uh, I mean, you could clean. You you could get it clean, and and essentially it was you know doing a, an asbestos abatement. Uh, like you were saying, that's essentially what it was. If you could clean up the dust and well enough that you could then go and do an aggressive air sampling TEM looking for Christyle and it came back clean, you were, you know, assured you had gotten everything else that was associated with that dust. Now let's let's put aside the regulatory aspect on asbestos because we most of our listeners know, and I'll I'll just make sure that everyone knows it's highly regulated, and it's um, some people feel regulated a little too stringently, and that that some people uh, feel that maybe we pay a little too much attention to the asbestos versus other issues in these buildings. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts, Jack? What was the question? I'm sorry, you lost well, that. Well, <laughs> the question would be, do you, on, a, um, on a relative scale, do you look at asbestos as a, a major indoor environmental quality problem compared to some of the other indoor environmental quality problems that you run across, like ventilation issues, like uh, maybe lead dust or maybe uh, pesticides or other indoor environmental quality issues you know, on a relative scale where do you where do you rank asbestos up there well it's it's way down way um, okay. <clears throat> yeah i think what well, the the regulations basically drove drove the industry to to run around and rip out everything that they could especially in the schools and i think in the short term it actually probably created a greater hazard than than it was resolving um uh, lead, lead dust. Uh, well, you're in our cities. We we have the issue with the lead-based paint and whatnot. Um, we also in a lot of the older buildings, you're going to find um, relatively high levels of, of lead dust uh, just due to historic deposition from the use of tetraethyl lead and gasoline. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question, but uh, uh, it does actually. I, I I was curious on your mainly on your thoughts on asbestos, whether we spend 
too many resources on asbestos and maybe not enough on other indoor environmental quality issues that could be more uh, better spent, let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Dieter, I'd just like to get your opinion on this. The main reason I'm asking this question is, again, I've got this class. We've got people who are fairly new to the indoor environmental quality industry. They're taking a course on the fundamentals of industrial hygiene and application to indoor environmental quality, and I get questions about asbestos, and I'd like to get two expert opinions. Well, I uh, not too long ago, I was in a building, I think 12-story building in Pittsburgh, where there is still asbestos-containing insulation installed, but it has been encapsulated, it's being taken care of. And even though there was quite a bit of asbestos over there, our air samples were very, very low. Very low, no doubt about it. But, yeah, that whole question with indoor air quality and measuring it and getting it it is incredibly difficult. I just was working on two other buildings, and I took charcoal samples to get something. I didn't find anything. I took, quote, dust samples, and I sent them over to the laboratory. said, is there anything interesting? Is there anything outrageous that you see on those samples? No, the answer is no. There were complaints by the people that the indoor air wasn't you know, good enough. It is an incredibly difficult and complicated uh, uh, problem that you have uh, 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 that you can take care of. Now, if you if you send me uh, uh, to a company that makes batteries, now I know I'm lead as lead acid batteries. I know what to sample for, but you know you go into a building, and I have seen you know, people they do. Uh, gas chromatography with mass spectrometry and they sent me their results and said, Dieter, what do you think? I do not know what one microgram of whatever it is, usually a chemical that I've never heard of, is, is that the culprit? Does that produce disease? Does that produce uh, um, complaints about the indoor air? It's, it is a very, very difficult and complicated uh, task to really get a handle on that. Thank you, Dieter. And, and Jack, I'd like to know, I mean, because I've got these people in this class and they're looking at industrial hygiene, and um, would you agree? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dieter was talking about, you know, taking the, the charcoal tube samples. You, you can also do it with the summa canisters, and, and you get the results back in parts per billion range. and, and Again, you, you you get these results, and, and it's uh, you know it, it's it's very difficult to interpret it, what it means, and, and whether it's it's a issue. You know, if you find acetone, well, you're going to find it in every building, limonene, pinene, you know, things like this. So, um, you really before you do testing, you you need to to know in your mind first why am I doing the testing, and second, what am I going to do with the results when I get them. You know, yep. very no, absolutely. Yeah. You got to tell real quick, and we're going to move on to um, agents of infection in a moment because that's big on the news. But Dieter, you got to tell real quick, what's a part per billion? A part per billion? Oh my! 
I know what a part per million is, and then you have to multiply what? Divide it by another thousand. One part per million is one inch in 16 miles. What I'm saying is that 16 miles is approximately one million uh, uh, inches. So a part per billion that is 16, that is one inch in 16,000 miles, uh, that is halfway, more than halfway around the world. It is just unbelievable. If you don't like, um, if you don't like uh, 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 length dimension, one part per million is one drop of vermouth in 16 gallons of gin. Now that is a that is a very dry martini, and it is a scientific martini. It is a one part per million um, uh, martini, and again a part per billion. Think about that. That's sixteen thousand gallons. I think that's probably what's in a swimming pool or something like that. So it is amazing how small these quantities are, and what is to me even more amazing is that we can measure them. It's incredible. You know, what's amazing to me, uh, and you guys can confirm this, is that even as as great as our instrumentation is and that we can measure these things, the human body has a sense that can measure chemicals at even lower levels than we can detect. Sometimes, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that would be our sense of smell. We can it's oftentimes that, smell and, yeah, and people who are sensitized to whatever chemical it is, there may be literally one molecule that may trigger an attack. Amazing. And, uh, the, yeah, the human body can, can, can notice that. Yes, indeed. All right. Gentlemen, we need to move on. We're running out of time, and I've got two more um, types of, uh, in, of uh, let's see what we call these um, pollutant categories. We did the chemicals. We did the biologicals. And let's talk about the one that's... Uh, big time in the news today, and that would be agents of infection. I'm curious, Jack, you work with a lot of people up in the New York City area. What type of preparations are your clients making for this H1N1 flu? Um, it, it depends on the company, varies by the companies. Uh, it just did a, a job recently, uh, like a week ago, for, for a large pharmaceutical company. And they're basically going by what the CDC guidelines are. Uh, if somebody gets sick, starts to have a fever, stay home until your fever breaks. Um, they're using lots of uh, uh, hand sanitizers. Um, you know, they expect upwards of 50% of, of their workforce probably being affected, you know, and, and, and uh, it's a fact of life. Now, I've got a text question from a listener here. Um, is the H1N1 flu shot being released in October? And uh, they had heard on the news that the scientists now discovered that only one shot will be needed, where I guess there was supposed to be a series of uh, a couple there. Are you familiar with that at all, Jack? Um, I am familiar to a point only because my son just went to college this year. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's in the Petri dish. <laughs> mm, <okay>. um, <laughs> so he'll be, uh, he'll be getting a shot. And as far as I know, yes, uh, it's supposed to be the end of this month that, that they're finally releasing it. Um, but I hadn't heard about the single shot thing. Okay. We'll try and follow up on that later. 
Let's move on to our um, our last area. You know what? Better yet, let's move on to the roundup. We're at twelve fifty five here, Chris. What do you think? Hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, draw high. Cut him up, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, draw high. Let's round it up here, and we're going to start with Glenn Feldman. I got to ask a bunch of questions today, and I know you've got one or two for these gentlemen. I do, but first, uh, I did I did read on uh, on CNN.com uh, this morning that they are claiming it, uh, it there will be a single shot uh, for H1N1. It won't be a two-shot regime like it is for seasonal flu. Uh, interestingly, they also say that, that, that the shot will be out sometime in October, but China, where, who, who, if you remember, Back when uh, <clears throat> swine flu came out, we all blamed China. Everyone said it, it was it originated in China, and then we quickly realized that uh, Mexico was was probably more the source. China's already given shots for for H1N1 just as of this week. So hmm. For what it's worth, uh, maybe they've got more people there to move faster. My okay. question for our experts here is one that uh, I hear a lot from from parents. I've heard it even within parents of my own kids' school, which is. They say, well, you know, with a new um, a new uh, drug here uh, that's just been rushed to market and rushed through testing, you know, maybe it's more dangerous to inoculate. Maybe I ought to just let my my kid get the flu. People get the flu all the time. Uh, millions and millions of people get the flu every year, and they get sick and they don't feel good for a week, and then they bounce back. So I'm going to skip the inoculation because I'm scared of the inoculation. What do you tell people who are worried about the the, the flu shot? for the novel H1N1. Gentlemen, anybody want to take a crack at that? Well, I agree with Glenn. Uh, I make my own antibodies. Um, if I get the flu, I get the flu. I can spend uh, one week out of my life uh, being feeling miserable and staying at home. But I am also, I am I'm scared of inoculations, and I think we are sometimes overdoing it. I think Mother Nature uh, has given us a, a beautiful, beautiful mechanism to make our own antibodies. And um, if I make an antibody to that flu, that's one, <laughs> that one is perfect, and I will not ever get that one again. So um, I'm, I'm one of those lucky people who has never, ever had the flu and um, uh, uh, never ever had a cold, and uh, miraculously, I was never inoculated. It had something to do with the place where I was born and where I grew up during the war. <laughs> I didn't know what a doctor was <laughs> much. So uh, I, I and I have antibodies against everything. So I had subclinical uh, mumps and uh, diphtheria and all of the other good uh, things that one gets. The German measles. <laughs> <laughs> So I, um, I, I, I go along with Glenn. I, I don't think that overwhelming the body is always a good idea. All right, Jack? Um, I would agree. I would say, you know, if, if you're in good health, then there's no reason to be getting um, the shot. Uh, if, if, if you have an underlying condition that, that would make getting the flu that much worse, then, then yeah, get the immunization. 
Well, now isn't uh, let me let me throw in a little twist here. Isn't um, this will be my question, I guess? Um, isn't the purpose of the inoculation to get enough people that are um, protected so that we don't see overwhelming numbers of people become infected? Anyone want to respond to that? Well, I guess that's the idea of uh, immunizing uh, people to, you know, to quote minimize it, or to keep it as low as possible. Yes. Okay, Jack. Anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, it sounds reasonable to me. Okay. All right. Just thought I'd bring that one up. All right. Let's go back uh, one more time. I just want to make sure, Dieter. Is there anything you wanted to add before we go, especially for my folks down at the University of West Florida, as well, far as IH and IEQ? Well, uh, I tell you one thing. Um, when we are do, uh, looking at indoor air quality, we are looking at very small amounts of, of, of chemicals. This is not a chemical uh, factory. This is not a, a, a place. It's not a coal mine. It's not a steel plant where, you know, there, there are hazards where there is noise. In indoor air quality, by and large, and I'm not talking about condemned buildings that have been you know, wet for years and uh, uh, falling down. I'm, I'm talking about normal office buildings and, 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 and houses. It, I tell you, it is a tough job to find something over there that may make uh, people sick or that people are compl uh, complaining about because it, these quantities of, of whatever, chemicals or VOCs, volatile organic chemicals, regardless from where they come, from molds or bacteria or, or, or carpets or furniture, it is, a, 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 I, 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 I always have a, a big problem interpreting the data when I, I find very low amounts of chemicals. Okay. Jack, anything you'd like to add for our, uh, our students down at the UWF or any of our listeners? Um, yeah, I would just say... When you have an indoor air quality complaint and problem, you need to go in there and, and develop a hypothesis before you start just taking a bunch of samples. You know, um, and, and you need to to gear your sampling around that hypothesis. Uh, and <clears throat> again. Before you take a sample, understand one, why are you taking that sample? And number two, what am I going to do with those results when I get them? Uh, am, am I using the results to try to prove a negative, which which we should all know you really can't do, or to prove my hypothesis is right, that there is this problem, whatever it is, X problem. So. All right. And I've got one more uh, real quick um, guest uh, text question here for you. Um, he's wondering how much of a factor job stress may play in these IAQ issues. Either of you like to comment on that? Well, Dieter? I, I don't know whether it's a stress on the job, but I think I have seen uh, a hysteria where all of a sudden people said, oh yeah, I coughed too, and oh yeah, my asthma, and uh, oh yeah, I had a bad uh, reaction when I was in the office. So I, I hear that um, uh, quite frequently, but yeah, that mass hysteria stuff, uh, does job stress have something to do with it? 
I think so, yes. I think if 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 you walk in in the morning and you know you may get laid off the next week when you don't get a paycheck, I think that that part or that 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 the body that that type of a body will react differently than somebody who is happy and healthy and uh, has quote no problems. Thank you, dear Jack. Would you like to add anything? Um, I would agree, and I'd also like to say these uh, the psychosocial IAQ problems are some of the most aggravating ones to have to try to to address because it doesn't matter what you find; it's always going to be that you you didn't find what the problem is, even if there isn't a problem. So, and and if the building or, or the company or whoever it is allows a situation like that to fester for for weeks and months before they call you in, you may as well just say, no, thank you, I don't want that job because I know I'm never going to (laughs) win. Well, I'm I'm in a situation like that, yes. (laughs) Right now, huh? All right. Well, listen, I want to really thank our our two guests for this week, uh, Jack Springston, our CIH CSP from New York City and the Sandler Occupational Medicine Associates, also known as SOMA, and of course our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us this week on this uh, 9-11 memorial show. I also want to make sure that I thank the wingman, Chris Boisel, for helping out at the controls, and of course Glenn Feldman for joining us for the IE Connections What's News. Next week, the Z-Man will be back. He'll be uh, manning the show, and he is working on a special guest. He's at Connections now, so... I assume he is uh, lining up someone from the disaster restoration end of things. And uh, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks most importantly to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 